Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Wednesday, October 16, 2019, is a Bonnie and Richard Reese lecture in constitutional history and law. In this talk, Bob Bauer, Charlie Savage, and Lisa Monaco discuss the controversies and precedents surrounding the use of presidential powers both historically and today. Thanks so much. It's great to be here um, and a real treat for me to actually get to turn the tables a little bit. My uh, current and former colleague, Bob Bauer, now um, as we are both uh, law professors at NYU, I now get to fire the questions at you. Um, and Charlie used to put me through my paces when I was serving in the Obama administration and he was doing the job of uh, a free press that we always appreciate and so much value, especially today. Uh, so it is particularly um, uh, a happy event for me to get to turn the tables on Charlie. I have no comment. Yeah. <laughs> See, you learned something from talking to me all those years. Um, but my last thank you is uh, to Rick Reese, who uh, is a wonderful supporter of this program, of course, and who I'm uh, privileged to know, and his support and leadership of the Reese Center on Law and Security, where I am uh, very happy to serve as distinguished senior fellow, is uh, a wonderful treat for me as well, too. So thank you, Rick. So. Okay. Now, with the niceties out of the way. Uh, so let's start off with a little kind of historical perspective um, and maybe some kind of context laying. Charlie, as Louise mentioned, you wrote a book uh, called Takeover, and you described something called the imperial presidency. Can you just give us a sense of what is that? What does that mean? I think that'll help us in our vocabulary for the next hour. Certainly. So uh, this is a term that was coined or at least popularized by the historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr., around the time of uh, Nixon and, and sort of just pre-Watergate, he wrote a book called The Imperial Presidency. And what he was describing was a trend that spanned multiple presidents dating back to roughly World War II, uh, in which of presidents of both parties, in which the power of the White House versus that of Congress and the courts and the public as well in terms of secrecy powers, uh, was growing beyond what the founders had intended when they created the Constitution and the system of separated powers uh, that we have inherited. And so President, at the end of the World War II, the, the rise of the administrative state, first of all, coming out of the New Deal, and then the continuation of standing armies around the world as World War II segued into the Cold War and the fear of atomic holocaust created a situation in which presidents were claiming more and more power on, to act on their own, to act unilaterally, to, to go to war in places like Korea without asking Congress for permission, to invoke executive privilege, which was a phrase that didn't exist before the 50s, to keep information Congress, uh, secret from Congress, and so forth and so on. And the powers of the presidency grew, and they sort of peaked 
with Nixon and Vietnam and uh, Watergate. And then after Watergate and Vietnam and then something called the Church Committee as well, in the mid-1970s, there was a crash of presidential power. And Congress woke up after a generation of sleep and started reclaiming some of its authority, some of checks and balances. It was passing a series of laws intended to frame how presidents would use their powers and regulate it and keep it from being abused. And that period lasted roughly until the beginning of the Reagan administration uh, through the Carter administration. And then starting in the 80s, presidential power started to grow again. And a lot of the, the ground that the presidency had lost was regained by the time of 9-11. And then uh, what my first book was about was telling that story, but then putting it in the context of the Bush administration's efforts to ex use 9-11 to expand presidential power in all kinds of different directions even more. And I traced that expansion and that desire to Dick Cheney's experiences in the mid-1970s when he was chief of staff to Gerald Ford at the nadir of presidential power and the sort of sense of outrage of having been in the Nixon administration at the heart of power and then having it collapse and his desire to refight those battles of the 70s and win, this, win them this time and leave the presidency stronger than it had been when they arrived, not just for themselves, but for all future presidents, Democrats as well, and Donald Trump's as well, as it turns out. And so that is the, the, the story of the rise, fall, and rebirth of the imperial presidency from sort of a 10,000-foot perspective. So, um, Bob, as White House counsel, you were the protector of the presidency. Fair, you can argue with me. Um, so you're all for the imperial presidency, right? Like, more power the better for the president? No, I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not. And in truth, let me just say one thing about the role of the White House counsel. I, it, it's been said many times before, but it is taken seriously, I think, by most White House counsels. There have been exceptions. There may be an exception now. We can discuss that. Yeah. But the notion that the White House counsel is, first of all, uh, an institutional lawyer, not the president's personal lawyer, not the president's political lawyer. Now, there are complexities that are presented by discussing an institutional representation when the quote-unquote client, in flesh and blood terms, is a specific president who was elected on a particular program to pursue particular policies and priorities and has asked you to help him or her facilitate those objectives. So, yes, there's some complexity in keeping the institutional perspective in front of you when there's a human being there in the Oval Office with very very particular wishes and interests. But nonetheless, I do think that a White House counsel should normally keep in view, and I don't mean this idealistically, I think this is true, normally keep in view long-term institutional interests of the presidency. And those long-term institutional interests of the presidency are not necessarily the greedy aggregation of power wherever it can be scooped up. <laughs> uh, so for example, and we'll go into this a little bit later, but I'll just use it as an example, Privilege claims. They can be responsibly asserted. They can be irresponsibly asserted. They can be conscientiously asserted with an understanding of the clashing interests of the Congress and the executive in certain circumstances. Or they can be asserted sort of without regard to congressional prerogatives, which I think in the long run is not in the interest of the constitutional presidency. The only other point I want to make very quickly, by the way, about and this goes to White House counsels maybe getting a little swept up in the moment and, and potentially falling on the side of being enablers of an all-powerful presidency, scooping up power wherever it can be found, is an addendum to what Charlie said. 
And that is, there were political developments, uh, all sorts of developments that I think he very ably described that pushes the presidency back up mm -hmm. after the period of time that he described that post-Watergate, Congress began to reclaim some of its authority. But there's also a part of the presidency and, and the, the, the trajectory of the presidency that's rooted in some very powerful trends in the popular culture. The president, uh, there's a book that Gene Healy at the Cato Institute wrote called The Cult of the Presidency. The, presidency, uh, the president as an extraordinary figure. The president is the embodiment of the hopes and dreams of the American president, uh, of the people. The president is both a political leader but also a spiritual leader, right? Right there are the seeds of major trouble. <laughs> right, major, major trouble. And uh, suffice it to say, um, I, I think we'll have a chance to talk about yeah. those pressures as well. Let me ask you to do one more bit of definition mm -hmm. uh, to set the table for the discussion. We talked about the imperial presidency. You defined that. We've heard a lot about the phrase unitary executive, particularly over the last several months. Bill Barr is a proponent of the unitary executive theory. Dick Cheney and his counsel, David Addington, back in the post-9-11 era, were big proponents of the unitary executive. What is it? It's often confused with the idea of the all-powerful executive. It is a doctrine that's a little more nuanced than that, although, by the way, it leads down that road. It can lead down that road. The, unit, the notion of the unitary executive in its hardest form is that the President of the United States has plenary supervisory authority over the executive branch. And the officers who serve in the executive branch serve not just at the President's pleasure in the sense that the President can fire them, but he can, in fact, dictate every detail of what they do and stop them, for example, from exercising discretion in the exercise of their responsibilities. And the a classic example of a, an early, I don't, know, I don't know how early this is in the broad sweep of history here, but it was a Reagan administration assertion of authority where the words executive, unitary executive appears in an opinion of the Office of Legal Counsel came when Congress called upon the Center for Disease Control to publish a pamphlet on AIDS prevention, and Reagan didn't want to do that. He wanted to take the whole subject of AIDS and the spread of AIDS and preventive practices involving AIDS. He wanted to sweep it away. And so Congress then passed a law directing the CDC to publish the pamphlet, and Reagan objected. And the Office of Legal Counsel issued an opinion saying, the president decides what the CDC does or doesn't do. Congress has no authority in the matter. That is a strong version of the unitary executive theory. Okay, so this notion, the reason that we're all here tonight, this notion of presidential power, abused, expanded, um, uh, curtailed in some instances, this is not new, right? This has a history. Um, and we are kind of ass almost assaulted daily about you know, I, this notion that uh, the president's powers has been um, used in extraordinary ways. You can, almost can't get away from the superlatives, right? It's extraordinary, it's unprecedented, et cetera. But it's not new, right? Now, you wrote, Charlie, and you did, um, your second book was about um, the Obama presidency and particularly his uh, use of um, use of force, national security policymaking, legal issues in the national security space. Um, there was some criticism that President Obama actually continued on this march of expanded presidential power, right? Some also criticized him for actually trying to curtail, in a very unusual way, his own presidential power. Where do you, where do you land on that? What do you think is the legacy in the Obama years of presidential power? 
Well, I think it's, uh, I don't know, I, I might quarrel with the premise a little bit. I think it's hard to identify places where Obama actually sought to curtail presidential authority. He sought to use it more discreetly, more cautiously. Uh, he didn't want to bring lots of new detainees to Guantanamo, and he hoped to close that place but keep holding some number of them somewhere else. But he was never relinquishing the claimed authority that Bush and Cheney had established to hold terrorists in indefinite detention without trial. He just didn't want to use it very often, whereas Bush and Cheney wanted to use it all the time. He certainly did not want to torture people, and that's a sort of a blurry line between law and policy. And that may be the place where he had the cleanest break with his predecessors and simply turning the spigot off or shutting the door to something. I guess it had probably wound down greatly by 2008 anyway. Uh, but I think the story of Obama and the inherited national security authorities that uh, Bush and Cheney established after 9-11 is one of right-sizing, downsizing, uh, shaving the rough edges off of, and occasionally cho choosing not to exercise, but not disclaiming mm. and not saying this was wrong from the beginning and no president actually has these authorities and I'm going to make, you know, so that's a little bit different than reducing the power of the presidency is just using it perhaps more prudently. Care to comment, Bob? I do. <laughs> um, I, nowadays especially, I relish the opportunity to defend Barack Obama. <laughs> I don't think that's an attack on him. It wasn't. It no, it wasn't. It wasn't an attack. It wasn't an attack. Uh, to, to, to take a slightly different view and maybe a more favorable view, um, though I'm not quite sure I'll be saying, maybe I'll be saying with more emphasis exactly what you said uh, in truth. <laughs> First of all, let me go back again to the question of sort of the cult of the presidency and sort of the political pressures on the office, because I think it's impossible on national security issues in particular to separate that from the unwillingness of presidents to relinquish authority. Public opinion polls show that the one thing for which the president is not forgiven, I mean, it's not forgiven for economic collapse, that's for sure, but presidents are not forgiven for, quote, failing to keep us safe. It's just an, they don't look to Congress to keep them safe. They look to the president to keep them safe. Say what you will, that is just a reality facing every single president who uh, enters that office. And so presidents are loath, particularly because of all sorts of other institutional issues with the Congress, which we can get into. They are loath to lay down weapons, if you will, or lay down authorities that may at some point, in some circumstances, become indispensable to this task of keeping the country safe. Having said that, I thought Barack Obama did something very important, and that is that on a number of occasions, in a number of ways, he not only articulated the importance of rule-bound processes that would govern the exercise of presidential authority, and we could talk about what some of those instances mm -hmm. were, and by the way, he went beyond just articulating them for internal executive branch adoption. He also, for example, in the matter of military commissions, engaged the Congress in a reform initiative, correct? correct. So. He was stood for the proposition that presidents had that authority, but they were required to think about it, account for it, and exercise it with restraint and with articulation of the circumstances in which the use of that power became necessary. So I don't think, in fairness, I'm saying something dramatically different than what Charlie did, except that I think it was actually a major accomplishment and very important step for him to take in the wake of the Bush era. Norms practices of presidential conduct play an enormous role in presidents 
superintending or husbanding these authorities responsibly. And I think Barack Obama took a huge step. May not have been permanent, may not survive other administrations in trying to bring us from the brink of excessive uh, presidential uh, or presidential abuse of the authorities that Charlie was referring to. I'd just chime in on this where, as the president's former counterterrorism advisor. Um, while there's a great deal of controversy uh, and many different views on the use of lethal drone strikes, for instance, with regard to um, terrorists overseas, President Obama was, of course, uh, the first one to impose a set of policy standards around the use of that um, very unusual and you know, emerging technology, right? So while there was a baseline of what was permissible under both law and presidential power, he chose to put another layer of policy constraint and governor on that. So, Still, just to, to balance this out for the sake of the discussion, yes. <laughs> the takeaway at the end of the day is Obama did not dismantle the surveillance state that he inherited from Bush, as the Snowden leaks revealed to the world. He kept all that in, entrenched and mm-hmm. continued to go with it. He expanded the drone war and indeed uh, approved the targeted killing of an American citizen, uh, which was something Bush had never done. And now maybe that was justified. And there was a lot of bureaucratic process and legal policy deliberations that the both of you were present for uh, mm-hmm. surrounding that. It wasn't willy-nilly, you know, making a decision while he's on the phone with Erdogan that no one's even <laughs> talked to him about. So that's, but that is not, it's not a story of relinquishing power. I think that's fair. And I, and I think that... I think it's fair, although I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, quibble a little bit with phrases like, phrases like, he didn't dismantle the surveillance state. I'm not quite sure what that means. Does that mean that a president, in order to accomplish meaningful reform of the kind that we're talking about, has to surrender all authorities that permit the United States to engage in some kind of surveillance of potential uh, adversaries overseas, particularly ones who are going to potentially do mass harm? So I I I, no, I, I, I shrink a little bit. It he didn't dismantle the surveillance state. He could have stage. turned off the programs that were secretly collecting domestic phone data and email data in bulk when he found out about them. The, the sort of we, not the targeting of enemies abroad or adversaries abroad, but the the weird post 9/11 stuff that uh, Bush and Cheney had bequeathed to him that had not yet. Okay, so I, well that's fair. I mean I think that if you want to if you want to critique um, the way in which he went about addressing those kinds of policies. I, I just wanted to pause at the notion dismantling the surveillance state because I thought it was rather all-embracing. Mm-hmm. So I, take, I take your point. Fair. I'm going to exercise the um, prerogative of the moderator and move us on. <laughs> so suffice to say, there's a backdrop to the world we find ourselves in today, right, and the current administration. Now, um, we've referenced the fact that we strain to describe the degree to which presidential power is being either expanded or used in new ways. Um, And we can point to lots of different areas where this is the case. Let's take one where um, it's on very front of mind, impeachment, okay? So uh, last week, your successor, Pat Cipollone, the current White House counsel, sent a letter to the Congress, an eight-page letter Um, to the Congress, which you have written about, I think, on Lawfare, most recently, Bob. Um, In part, it said uh, to the Congress that the White House and the President has no intention of cooperating in the impeachment inquiry, in part because of the lack of due process uh, 
-hmm. that um, the House is uh, providing in, in the White House counsel's view. Um, now, that sounds a lot like a criminal process, the kind of words you hear on law and order. Like, what do we make of that? What rights does a president have in an impeachment uh, inquiry? The president uh, has, and I, I worry about the word right because we mm -hmm. talk, think of rights. I used it because catching. I think Cipollone used it. But, but he did indeed. And, and is, by the way, and I, I try to be very sort of objective about these matters. There are many things I can say about the reign of his predecessor, Don McGahn, uh, and I think that's a complicated story. I, I think that what Pat Cipollone produced in the form of this letter is uncomplicated. It's a really bad letter. Uh, it is not the letter that a White House counsel should have written. There is some evidence that there are pieces of it that were more or less dictated by the President of the United States. The last time the President dictated something to a professional, apparently, if you recall, it, he dictated his health report to his doctor, who was scribbling it in the back of a taxi cab. And I don't think that that's the position the White House counsel wants to be in as an institutional lawyer. The president doesn't possess rights in the way that you and I possess First Amendment rights in the impeachment context. There are procedural safeguards that the president can certainly negotiate for that it would be consistent with House precedent and that I do think in an effort of accommodation with the Congress and frankly in an appeal to favorable public opinion, the president probably ought to negotiate for it. If I were White House counsel, rather than telling the Congress to go fish, which is a political play, I would have taken the institutional position, because there's a long-term institutional interest involved here, that the speaker and the president needed to come, or the speaker, yeah, I guess it would be the speaker in this case, or the Judiciary Committee, come to some understanding about at least some range of protections that would permit the president to mount a defense against impeachment. That's not what Tipalone did. Uh, he wrote a letter that is full of political rhetoric. As you point out, his conclusion was that the president wasn't going to cooperate at all in the inquiry because he concluded that it was politically motivated and therefore lacking in legitimacy. He even addressed the merits of the case, that there was nothing wrong with the transcript of the call with the president of Ukraine. He said, by the way, among other things, which I thought was risible, that the president of Ukraine didn't think there was anything wrong with it. So I guess, I guess that's okay then. You know? <laughs> at least now we know the president of Ukraine can be a witness in the impeachment proceeding, um, or an expert witness even. So no, I'm not keen on that letter. <laughs> so you've answered my next question, which is, would you have ever contemplated writing such a missive? I, I would like to think that in, in, in my right mind, no, and I'll tell you something else, and I, and I, and I do not, I've represented elected officials my entire life. To be a lawyer, you have to have some distance, and so I don't hero worship. So I think every politician, and that includes President Obama, has their strengths and has their weaknesses, as, admire them as, much, as I might. Barack Obama would never have allowed a letter like that to come from his White House counsel. Now, um there's lots of other things swirling around the impeachment context, right? We've been seeing um, lots of witnesses now go up and give testimony, notwithstanding the fact that the White House has said um, that they're barring them from doing so. I mean, can they, can in fact the, the White House prevent any of these folks from, from going up? Why is there that disjuncture? I don't know if you've got thoughts on that. Sure. Um, and actually it builds on what Bob was saying as well, because uh, I think that the letter from Pat Cipollone was, is, was not really a landmark event. It was, in some ways, uh, more of the same of what we've seen 
ever since uh, several months ago when Democrats took over the House of Representatives and began trying to conduct oversight of the executive branch, which had not happened when the president's own party controlled both chambers of Congress. And very early on, Trump went to the cameras and, and when he was about to get on a helicopter or on the South Lawn and said he was going to vow to block all, quote-unquote, subpoenas. So there's, there's been a political-slash-legal, more political than legal, uh, as it turns out, as we see how it fares in the courts, which is poorly, mm-hmm. but strategy of absolute, systematic, unabashed stonewalling and sort of a refusal to recognize the legitimacy of congressional oversight information-seeking uh, powers, uh, not just functionally, but in legal documents, a denial that this has a legitimate legislative purpose, these attempts to see if there has been wrongdoing and a large variety of topics, even before the impeachment word became normalized here. And so that letter, I think, was more uh, sort of pounding on the table, but it was of a, of a pattern that we've seen. And for a while, so the president, if you work for the executive branch, does have leverage over you if he tells you not to go to Congress and testify because even though you've been subpoenaed and you do anyway, he can fire you. Mm-hmm. If you are no longer with the president, uh, with the, the federal government, and the president says, I'm evoking executive privilege here, that give, if you don't want to testify, that gives you a shield. You can say, I'm not committing a crime. I think there's a valid legal reason why I, this information is shielded. You guys fight it out in the courts. If you don't work for the government anymore and you want to testify, the president's assertion of executive privilege does not stop you from testifying. And the president can't fire you because you don't work for him anymore. The most interesting thing about this recent flurry and the the breaking of the dam to some extent uh, with people coming to testify, notwithstanding the Trump's pounding of the table, is that some of these people still work for the government. They are still State Department employees, for example. And they're testifying notwithstanding the White House telling them not to. And they're sort of daring the White House to fire them, which would, Mm -hmm. I think, uh, only add to Congress's building article of impeachment for obstructing Congress's inquiry, uh, which might give Pat Cipollone pause about advising President Trump that he ought to fire ambassador so-and-so and so so forth. Um, But that's where we're at. And, And for the first few months here, everyone was obeying and towing the line. This was a lot of, you know, post Mueller investigation thwarting of congressional oversight attempts. But there seems to be something different about this Ukraine scandal, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the, the the walls aren't holding. Yeah, I, Bob, Charlie raises a good point, right? I mean, the original bluster about well, we're not going to cooperate, and I'm telling my State Department people not to cooperate. That was in the context of the Congress basically just asking nicely, "Hey, would you come up and talk to us?" Um, and then once faced with a subpoena. They, of course, go. What what can the White House do? I mean, this is kind it, of un, uncharted territory. I'm sorry, what can the White House do in what event? At, you know, Charlie raises the issue, well, they could be so upset, the president would be so upset that Fiona Hill actually went up mm-hmm. um, to testify. Sondland. And Sondland, because they the have, right, because, yeah, that's right, Fiona's, Fiona Hill has left. Sondland still works for the government. In the face of a subpoena, he honored it. What if the president was so upset with that and just decided to fire him. I mean, what should we think about that? Would would that be legit? I mean, they serve at the pleasure of the president. Well, the president can certainly fire them for honoring the subpoena. I mean, yeah. there's no question about that. Uh, insubordination. I, I, pardon me? Insubordination. It's insubordination. Yeah. You know, and the president, and of course, it'll be papered over, or it'll be presented by the president and, and by the White House counsel, 
as a principal defense of the privilege, and they disregarded it, so they have to go. Uh, you're right, by the way, that there's something going on with Ukraine that's different. Yeah. And it, it's really actually quite striking how different it is. And I, you know, we what do you make of, of that? I make of it uh, that there are individual, and I don't, and I, I, my information is limited, right? It's based on what all of us know and what you read between the lines. But my impression is that there are people who are, um, number one, as in the case of Ambassador Ivanovich, who are genuinely defending their honor and do not want to be associated with the behavior reflected in the transcript and any of the other activities behind that telephone call to the president of Ukraine. And then I also think that there is a probably no small of anxiety that this time, if you, if you assume that the transcript may be, as some people believe to be, the tip of the iceberg of a concerted effort to extract these political favors in a very complicated way, using his personal lawyer from the government of Ukraine, that some of these people may have assumed, some of the people who are now willing to go up and talk on the Hill, believe that this time the president may have jumped, if you will, the legal shark, <laughs> and they do not wish to sink to the bottom with him. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we're going to have other questions from the audience on impeachment, so I might skip to another area where we've seen expanded presidential power, another area ripped from the headlines, and that is the area of foreign affairs, national security issues like the withdrawal from Syria, right? Um, here again, we're witnessing kind of a flipping of the script. One of you, I think, mentioned the long history of Congress kind of nipping at presidential heels by saying, hey, wait a minute, you haven't consulted us on using force abroad and deploying troops, right? Um, and uh, the presidents in the past going forward and using force abroad, deploying troops without getting consent from Congress. Now with the Syria withdrawal, we have an exact opposite fact scenario, right? You have the president summarily uh, withdrawing and the Congress saying, no, no, by, on a bipartisan basis, uh, really up in arms about staying in. Bob, can, can Congress do anything to reverse this? Yes, it could. I don't know that it will, but it could. Congress has all sorts of weapons. Uh, the Congress can extort, if you will, or exact the behavior it wants from the president by taking it out of the administration's hide in a number of ways. It can use its appropriations power to deny funding for initiatives the administration very much wants. It can start holding hearings and completely disrupt the operation of certain branches of the government by calling up people up to Capitol Hill. Uh, the question is not whether Congress has a whole host of authorities it could rely upon, if you will, to, to be honest, to harass or pressure the president into compliance. It's that, it, as you say, this is an unusual situation, and Congress has not been typically willing to use the panoply of pressure points. If you think of some of the old, different Congresses in the past and the way that they have operated, um, you think of, you know, for example, if Lyndon Johnson were the majority leader of the Senate and the situation was reversed, would he have found ways to make the administration feel real pain until it complied? The answer is yes. I think he would have, and it would have been really painful indeed for the administration. Charles? Just, just hearing that, it, it makes me want to take a step back and say that uh, we have to separate the question of power and what a president can do with policy and, what a, and whether what a president does with whatever power he or she has is wise. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I mean, what you're talking about is, is 
extorting a presidency to reverse a policy that Congress doesn't like by using a sort of unrelated channels to, you know, we're not going to... I removed the extortion. I said exacting compliance. But, but that's... But that's um, <laughs> Very I, I, lawyerly, Bob. I think it's well within Trump's authority to withdraw from Syria. This might be a horribly bad decision, mm -hmm. you know, to betray the Kurds and do it in this fashion and sort of overnight get out without any sort of transitional planning and negotiated... Uh, uh, movement towards a more stable situation. But that doesn't mean that it's not within his power. And there's, uh, and, and there's a certain irony to that because you know part of what Obama did that I would put on the table to say there's no way that this is a story of, of Obama was a story of contracting power was he went into Syria in the first instance uh, without explicit congressional authorization. He sort of he came up with the theory when ISIS was a problem uh, that he needed no new authority from Congress to start a war against ISIS because ISIS was uh, effectively an offshoot of al-Qaeda and Congress had authorized war against the perpetrators of 9-11 and therefore that thing that Congress did in, in 2001 provided authority in 2014 to start a war against this related group in Iraq and then eventually Syria that included troops on the ground. And so there was a unilateral assertion of executive authority with a sort of gloss of legalese on it to get us there in the first place, uh, it would be odd that a president couldn't unwind that. And in the same way, uh, in the same way that one of the things that Obama did as his presidency went on, and partisan polarization in, in Congress made it increasingly hard to do anything through Congress, was in the domestic sphere, where he famously put forward the DACA and DAPA programs to shield uh, uh, children, uh, you know, from deportation if they've been brought here very young and were effectively Americans and stuff that Congress should have probably handled, but this the politics made it impossible to get that bill through. And then Trump comes in and wants to use his authority to unwind that, to end the, the program for the Dreamers. And that gets challenged in court as mm -hmm. how do you have the authority to willy-nilly unilaterally turn off this thing that your predecessor kind of willy-lilly unilaterally turned on. Mm -hmm. and, and so... The, some of this stuff where Trump is being criticized for what he's doing and whether it's moral or wise, I think has to be separated from the topic of tonight's discussion, which is whether he has the authority to do it or whether he's pushing against the limits that the Constitution intended for him to operate within. Well, I don't know. Bob, do you, do you have a comment on that? Because I, I, it, Charlie's right that there are, um, we should distinguish between the authority that the Constitution gives the president, but ultimately um, the exercise of that authority has to be buttressed by some political will, right, from, from the Congress, from the people. Certainly when, when um, uh, President Obama tried to go to Congress to seek authorization for the use of military force in Syria, he got a whole lot of nothing, right, not even a willingness to take a vote. So in the face of that, and to your point that the president's ultimately responsible for keeping the nation safe, what is, how, how should a president be, and how should we be thinking about a president balancing this political policy imperative against his or her um, legal authorities? Well, the distinction Charlie drew here is an important one, and your point is also important, which is it's impossible to separate these questions of constitutional authority from what I would call constitutional politics because constitutional politics ultimately determines the degree to which a president may claim an authority or the manner in which the president may exercise authority. 
And an awful lot of that is affected by public opinion. I should have mentioned, by the way, Congress, if it were unanimously, if there was a huge bipartisan push against what the president was doing in the Middle East, and there was public opinion to be molded in that respect, public opinion can make an enormous difference. Uh, you know, as in, for example, uh, Congress's, although buttressed also by other political activities in the United States, Congress's ability to mobilize public opinion against the war in Vietnam, Senator Fulbright is chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee and others, creating enormous pressures on the administration around the Vietnam War policy from about 1966 on, in, on through the end of the Johnson administration into the Nixon administration. So I do think that the, the politics, um, and I call it constitutional politics, does have a significant effect on what the president feels the president can do or how long the president can do it or the way in which the president can do it, and also on the constraints or pressures, even if they're not constraints, even if they're trying to pressure the president to do something the president has the authority not to do, right? Uh, I think that is also part of the overall story. Very quickly, one other example that Charlie writes about and is, is really excellent. It's an excellent book on Obama's administration. It's not, I don't agree with every word in it, but I think it's out. <laughs> I, I think it's, 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 it, is the, it is really the last word on the subject that I'm aware of uh, in terms of setting out the whole uh, complicated story. When President Obama led a NATO coalition against Gaddafi in Libya in 2011, and I'm, um, there was a very controversial, and I was involved in this, I'll admit it, uh, because I was there and I can't deny it. Um, <laughs> and I was a, a witness. A, and you were a witness, <laughs> and you would testify against me in a nanosecond. Uh, a controversial position on the application of the War Powers Resolution. And uh, Congress could have stood up and complained about it. In fact, in fact, Congress sent all sorts of messages to the White House that it was going to complain publicly, but we shouldn't worry too much about it. And the House passed two resolutions. One resolution called on the president, uh, denounced the president for the initiative, and the other one praised him for the initiative, and both resolutions passed. <laughs> <laughs> Only in Washington. <laughs> um, I'm gonna, I know we're going to get to audience questions in a minute, but I'm going to do one more kind of rip from the headlines thing, and, I'm, and I have to give a nod to um, our uh, colleague at NYU, Andrew Weissman, for teeing me up for this question. Andrew's somewhere in the audience. Um, so, and this is very, very timely. And this goes to the question of what is a president um, empowered to avoid, namely indictment and investigation. So this comes up in the case, in the context of a case being litigated right now in New York. Okay, so Cy Vance, the district attorney here in New York, uh, subpoenaed um, the private accounting firm that um, President Trump, or then Citizen Trump, uh, used for his uh, tax preparation. Cy Vance has subpoenaed those historic tax records. President Trump's private lawyers, as I understand it, ha um, filed a motion with uh, the judge saying, no, no, we're going to... We're, we're going to resist that subpoena. And the reason we're resisting that subpoena and not handing over these tax records is because the president is absolutely immune from any form of criminal process, right? Uh, so we know, of course, from our um, tuning in to the headlines about the Mueller inquiry that the Justice Department believes that a sitting president cannot be indicted but uh, can be 
investigated. In fact, the OLC opinion says that. So what are we to think about this, Bob? President Trump, then candidate Trump, said quite famously on the campaign trail that he was so popular that he could walk into the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and still win election. So my question, my hypo to you, law student Bob Bauer, is could President Trump now go into the middle of Fifth Avenue, shoot someone, and can the um, NYPD not investigate? No. I, I, <laughs> no, I, I'd have to say the answer to that is no. It's very interesting that he, 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 you use that particular example. Every single time you press somebody with those kinds of examples on the question of how much protection a president's entitled to an office, it kind of breaks down at murder. Right? <laughs> it's remarkable. Uh, so if any of you are interested in the popular culture variant of this, there's actually a movie about a president. I think he's played by Gene Hackman, who murders somebody. And of course, because that's what Clint Eastwood does, he's caught. But um, the Office of Legal Counsel opinions that held that the president could not be indicted while in office address a very complicated issue, a very serious issue. But the opinions were not well-crafted or persuasive, but they definitely laid the foundation for the administration to make the case that it's now making, that a president can't be investigated either. And the reason for that is that the argument was that if a president is indicted while in office, and then presumably facing trial, it will so incapacitate the executive that it upends the constitutional order and puts the country at risk, because you can't have a president functioning in that position. Well. And furthermore, there was also the further suggestion that the president couldn't function overseas in managing international relations because this criminal process would put a stain on the presidency. Well, by that same analysis, and think about independent counsel experience we had with Bill Clinton, mm -hmm. investigation is also very incapacitating. You know, your administration is you know, being showered with subpoenas. Witnesses are being called in at senior levels. The president's under tremendous pressure, has to hire private lawyers. So by the time you open up that door with that sort of argument to the non-indictment position, you're inviting someone to make the argument that Trump's lawyers are now making that investigation is also barred. OK, we have quite a list of questions to get to. Um, I think we'll, I'll start back on the impeachment piece here, and, um, and I'd love to get both of your views on this. Um, I guess in, in, in some ways this is a legal-slash-normative question, but um, I think it also is a question for our uh, member of the Fourth Estate here. Is President <laughs> Trump correct that the current impeachment inquiry is invalid until the House takes a full vote? Right, so this is one of the fuzzy questions. We haven't had that many impeachments in our history. It is the case that in both of the modern era ones, Nixon and Clinton, the inquiry began with a resolution by the full House saying, we authorize an, invest an impeachment inquiry. House Judiciary Committee go off and conduct one, and they generally set some parameters for it and approved extra money to hire some staff and gave the committee some extra subpoena powers and so forth. And this time, that has not happened. The Judiciary Committee has just sort of proclaimed itself to be engaged in an impeachment inquiry. And eventually, Pelosi also said that was the case. But there still not, does not, has not been such a resolution. So this has given uh, the Trump legal team something to hold on to in saying, here's another reason we don't have to cooperate, or your subpoenas are invalid, because this whole thing is Potemkin. It's not real unless you've 
issued this resolution. The problem with that argument is there's nothing in the Constitution that, or House rules that say there has to be a resolution to start such a thing. And there have been other impeachment inquiries that resulted in removals, not of presidents, but of federal judges, that where the committee just on its own started working on something and then brought it to the floor. And so this is uh, unresolved. Uh, it is the case that there's historical precedent that's not being followed here. It's also the case there's historical precedent not involving presidents that looks like this. Well, obviously, what's really happening is Pelosi does not want uh, blue dog Democrats, newly elected Democrats who flipped Republican districts where Trump won, where impeachment is unpopular, to have to go on the record with a vote for something that could endanger their re-election prospects next November or a, a year from now. Uh, and so they're trying to sort of have their cake and eat it too. It appears that the Ukraine matter, so that, that, all, that whole argument arose before Ukraine. That was mm -hmm. when Nadler was just looking at everything else, smaller stuff and emoluments and uh, you know, self-enrichment and paying off porn stars and hiding it before so that it, people wouldn't know that it was a campaign contribution. Uh, all the other, you know, yesterday's news. <laughs> and the Ukraine thing has uh, created such a, a different political shift that it appears that even uh, very moderate Democrats from very conservative by Democratic standard districts are now on board for the, the very least we should be looking at this. That doesn't mean they're going to vote for impeachment ultimately. And it's raised the question of whether Pelosi ought now just put a resolution on the floor to take this argument off the table, or would that be an admission that everything up till now is illegitimate? And that's kind of where things stand. Because the vote that we're talking about here would not be a vote to impeach, it would be a vote to commence an impeachment inquiry, right? Is yeah, this the heads right. dancing on the head of that's a pen right. thing? I, I think it is. I mean, I, I, the, the Constitution only, as Charlie says, doesn't prescribe any particular procedures. The House, the Constitution says the, the, the House has the sole power to impeach. End of story. So I would, first of all, point that out. I mean, I think that really puts the president's position in a kind of a, in, into a hole right off the bat. But then there's the additional problem is it, it's entirely unclear from whence the president derives the authority or has the standing to decide how the House should exercise his constitutional authority, <laughs> right? I mean, the president's like, I have standing to complain about the way you're doing your job constitutionally. Right. So I don't think, for example, the president could turn to the White House counsel and say, I need a letter from you that convincingly makes the case, and by the way, that is in the Cipollone letter, right? Mm -hmm. That completely makes the case. It's just for my use. I just want to see how you make that argument. I don't see how the White House counsel could ever make that argument look good. And that goes to the institutional point I was making earlier. From an institutional perspective, a White House counsel who was seriously trying to both protect the president's equities, that is to say this particular president, and look forward to the sort of long-term institutional interests of the presidency, would utilize the absence of the resolution as part of a discussion or negotiation with the House. It would be a pressure point. It wouldn't be the basis for an absolute refusal to cooperate. I think that some of these extreme arguments, and maybe that counts as one, maybe it doesn't, certainly some of the other arguments, like Don McGahn is absolutely immune from even having to show up in response to a subpoena, right. uh, that have no basis in precedent and, in fact, contradict precedent. Um, are, I, the best way to understand them, I think, is not this is a good faith legal theory that they earnestly believe and really would like you to be persuaded of. It is 
so much as it is a political act to defy and fight, 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 fight. Do not cooperate do not, because cooperation legitimizes slash keep the base in line by sh showing you're tough and fighting. And it has the virtue of tying things up in court. Even if the argument ultimately loses, then you can appeal, then it loses, you can appeal to the on bank, and then it loses, you appeal to the Supreme Court, and you chew time up, you run out the clock the game is to get through the next election and prevail. Mm -hmm. And then whatever comes out can be the, the subject of pardons. But until then, uh, it's better just to keep that thing from coming out and to run out the line. Every day that there's an argument and a lawyer like Bob says, well, that's not a good argument, and here's why, and he's right, it doesn't matter because Bob it's a day then? that's consumed. Yeah. <laughs> and I would also, I, I think there's also, I completely agree with everything that Charlie just said, and then there's another facet to it, which is the longer the argument goes, the deeper we are into the election cycle, and the harder it is to sell, although that depends on the case, by the way, that's why Ukraine is so significant, but normally the harder it is to sell the idea that a president who's in the middle of seeking re-election ought to be removed by the House of Representatives denying the people the choice. Now, again, there are limits to that theory, but I think that's also a play here, which is by the time you get to... Now, by the way, Mitch McConnell today said, speaking of the, the Senate's having the sole power to try, mm. that he expects the House to impeach by Thanksgiving, and he expects the trial to last until Christmas. <laughs> so that sounds like a thoroughgoing exploration of the law and the facts. <laughs> <laughs> um... We've got a question Better on... Moving to dismiss on day one. Well, yeah. that's true. It might happen. It might happen. Um, we've got a question on uh, a Supreme Court appointment, but I, I, to just follow up in this line of inquiry for one second, another question. Uh, what is the client-lawyer privilege in reference to the president and the White House counsel? The White House counsel has is a government lawyer, and the privilege extends as does the deliberative privilege or there's a package of privileges that include attorney-client privilege, presidential communications privilege, a deliberative, a deliberative privilege, but they extend to the conduct of official business. The defense of the president, say, in a criminal proceeding is not privileged, so if the president turns around and says to the White House counsel, by the way, I was just on Fifth Avenue and I killed somebody, mm -hmm. that is not a privileged communication, <laughs> okay? And in fact, the White House counsel is obligated by law to report the crime. Note to Pat Cipollone. Pardon me? Note to Pat no, no, of course, Since the president did it on Fifth Avenue, he's probably not the only person who observed it, but the White House counsel is obligated to report the crime. <laughs> uh, so that is, in the impeachment context, it gets tricky. And if you recall, there's both a presidential personal engagement with the underlying facts of the allegation, right? Mm -hmm. But there's also an institutional engagement with the impeachment, which is why in the Clinton impeachment, the president had on the floor of the Senate both a personal counsel and also the White House counsel. And Chuck Ruff, the very fine White House counsel under Bill Clinton, is a well-known lawyer, uh, and delivered, actually, a presentation on his behalf, as did his personal lawyers. Great. Um, another question from the audience. If the Democrats take back the presidency, but the Republicans retain the Senate, could Republicans block slash delay a Supreme Court appointment for four years? Yes. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. No wiggle room. Nope. Only public pressure. Yeah. Public outcry. Nope. Um, there you go. Clear answer, whoever wrote that question. Um, uh, so 
Bob, you are the author of a forthcoming book with Jack Goldsmith, a, a law professor at um, Harvard, where you talk uh, where, that will be about uh, recommendations for reform post-Trump. I'm not getting the title right. Allow yourself the to plug. The working titles after Trump, legal reform, an agenda for reform. So this question is apropos of that. To both of you, what constitutional amendments, amendment or amendments, would you propose, presumably in the wake of uh, the current moment? Or other reforms? I'll expand yeah. on the questioner's question to... Constitutional amendments are hard. Yeah. Um, I will say, I'll bring up uh, a project I recently did, which I have done every four years going back to 2007, where this time of year uh, in the president, this time of every four years in the presidential primary cycle, I ask would-be presidents to answer a series of tough questions about their understanding of the scope and limits of the powers they would wield if elected. All these things where there's no clear answer and there's an Office of Legal Counsel memo that people disagree with, that kind of thing. when can you go to war without Congress, that kind of stuff. And this year I added to it the proposition that if one of them were to prevail over Trump in 2020, assuming he's still in office in November 2020, there, there is likely to be a period of proposals of reforms to executive power in response to this present moment, not unlike how in the 1970s after Watergate in Vietnam and the church committee, there was a series of bills put forward to constrain presidential power in the ways that it had been seen to have been abused. And so I put to the candidates, would you sign to see as constitutional and sign into law, or what would you see as in, in the following areas? And this listed all the things, you know, restraining the abilities of the president to declare a national emergency and then unlock certain powers uh, when maybe people don't agree that there's an emergency, or to make a national security exception to things like the ability to impose tariffs on steel when maybe people don't agree that Canada's steel industry is a threat to our national security. Mm -hmm. uh, the ability to hire close relatives. Uh, into the White House positions and uh, you know nepotism issues, the ability to not put your assets in a blind trust or sell them if mm -hmm. you have major business dealings with foreign governments around the world, and the ability to grant security clearances to people that normally uh, would be not allowed to have a security clearance because they have some kind of security threat in their background, and on and on and on and on and on. And so I, I think you know I came up with like eleven yep. um, possible categories. I just listed maybe half of them. And it was interesting to see where, where people were willing to go What's, and where anything they Anything surprise you in particular? So people who had been in the, like Biden, was, I think, was more cautious than some. He did not, one of the things Trump has done has been very aggressive about using the Vacancies Reform Act to install people into positions that normally require Senate confirmation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no one in the Department of Homeland Security who's a Senate confirmed at the top, at least at this point. The head of ICE, the head of you know, CIS, the head of other things, the DHS secretary, the general counsel, they're all just kind of random people that Trump put into these positions that were supposed to have Senate confirmation. And there's a law that when there's a vacancy that allows a president to temporarily fill things, but he's just using it willy-willy to not have to go through the Senate at all. So some of the candidates were like, yes, I think there should be new limits on this. You should only be allowed to have someone there for 30 days or whatever, and others were like, well, we need that flexibility. Biden was one of those. Mm -hmm. And I think Biden was also very, what well, was more cautious than others, I'm just focusing on him as the front runner, or I don't know if Warren is overtaking him at that point, but, you know, about uh, 
restrictions on a president's ability to declare national emergencies or invoke national security exceptions to things. Mm -hmm. And I think probably his eight years in the White House seeing emergencies arise and the need for exigent responses to things it maybe made him cautious about tying his own hands in ways that people who were not in the White House yet were like, of course that Trump abused that, we should make it so it's impossible for anyone to abuse that. So in, the, in an effort to maybe end us on a hopeful note, I'll give you a, uh, Bob, your, your preferred uh, potential reforms. Some I, I, are, could be very straightforward, and not all of them are straightforward. Some, some legal reforms are very difficult for constitutional and other reasons. And so what you look to do is you look to use the law to see if you can reinvigorate some failing norms, mm -hmm. right, and put some pressure to bring the norms back to life. But, for example, can you require the President of the United States to <coughs> surrender his or her tax returns? The answer, yes. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it can be done quite the way the House has done it up to this point, but it certainly can be done by legislation. Another example would be having Congress exercise its constitutional authority uh, to introduce itself or to inject itself more into the emoluments controversy. Congress has the power under the emoluments clause to consent to emoluments, which suggests that there's a regulatory authority that Congress has yet to exercise. That's another example. And then it becomes you know, more complicated fixing problems with the special counsel regulations that we've seen clearly, certainly surface during the Mueller uh, case where the Department of Justice is investigating wrongdoing by the president or others at senior levels in the government, and then in the area in which both you and Charlie are, of course, of experts, questions about uh, legal reform of the national security establishment, including sort of the one that's been out there for a long time, occasioned no small amount of controversy, but reform at long last of the 1973 War Powers Resolution. Right, right. But that's just a, a, an example. We also reform it. How, pardon me? How would, how would you reform it? Well, number one, You'll buy the book and read it, I'm sure, uh, <laughs> and comment on it. Uh, uh, but, so, but number one, uh, uh, that, is, that, is, that is something we're, we're definitely working on and we'll set out in the book as alternative particular approaches. There have been proposals for revisions of the war power resolutions for some time. Um, that isn't going to bring the constitutional conflict to a close, which is, I guess, what your question was meant to imply. Uh, and so, yes, I mean, some of these reforms, I think, can have an immediate effect. And some of them are going to, by the way, get drawn into what we called earlier constitutional politics. That's what we call a teaser, ladies and gentlemen, um, to buy Bob's new book. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.